Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio. Good morning, everyone. It's Rally Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. It's so wonderful to be with you this morning, and we've got a good show coming up. As always, you're on uh, Rally Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We've got Dr. Muriel Newman, my colleague. I've known Muriel for many, many years. We were MPs together. We entered Parliament together, and she is a fabulous, fabulous person. And we're going to be exploring here, poor, poor. Uh, this is this document that has secretly and covertly marified everything in government and what's been so upsetting in this idea that we should have co-governance. We talked to Dr. Newman about that. And also we have on a crowd favorite, Kathy Jamieson. And she's discovered that there were different jabs that were being given in New Zealand. But the authorities, it seems, aren't too keen <laughs> to disclose to us or to disclose to Kathy just exactly what these uh, different jabs contain. We'll talk to Kathy. Uh, that's coming up. Uh, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, rallycheck.radio. Don't forget, you can send me a text at 2057, email me inbox at radio. It's going to be a great show. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way. Because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together. And so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I, I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions but you know as i've said before there is no such thing as a wrong opinion opinions are like noses everybody's got one the exchange of views fair debate no cancelling no interrupting no aggressive responses we want to hear what people have to say whatever side you're on and the listener the consumer with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Here on Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Don't forget, send me a text, 2057. Email me at inbox at radio. We had such great feedback from uh, interviewing my uh, former colleague. That sounds wrong, doesn't it? My great former colleague, uh, Dr. Muriel Newman, uh, who is a wonderful researcher with the New Zealand, I'm going to get it wrong, I always get it around the wrong way, the New Zealand, she'll correct me, New Zealand Centre for Political Research, she'll correct me, um, but she does all this research so that we don't have to, and you can find out what government's up to by subscribing to her newsletter each week. 
But we left it hanging uh, last time we spoke, and I wanted to explore more deeply a report that I only hear the name of, and it sends a shiver down my spine, here, poor, poor. So joining me now is Dr. Muriel Newman. Good morning, Muriel. Good morning, Rodney. It's lovely to be back again. Now, tell me your webpage. It's at www.nzcpr.com. New Zealand so Centre for Political Research, Great. nzcpr.com. Great. I got it now. And I always get the – I never know whether it's the political oh, – I don't know. New Zealand Centre for Political <laughs> Research. You do a great job. Everyone that's listening should hop right across – I've just bookmarked it, and that's why I never know where it is, and it just pops up. It's a great web page, and you sign up to Muriel's newsletter, and you'll be kept appraised of the craziness. And, of course, it's going to be particularly interesting because Muriel Newman's going to be casting her eye, her practiced eye, over the new government that will form come this November. So we'll get lots of insights from Muriel. But what we're particularly interested in now is this here, poor, poor, um, which I've Googled and means the break. And what it means is not the break as in B-R-A-K-E, but B-R-E-A-K, the waves breaking on the shore. And the idea is, is that New Zealand's been uh, sailing along in a particular direction, and this report is a break with the way we've been governing things, and we're going to start doing things all differently. now. Muriel, to start with, give us the background of this report. Right. Well, it arose out of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Now, you might remember that that was a a UN um, agreement that Helen Clark, when she was Prime Minister, refused to sign because she said um, New Zealand already had Uh, various treaties in place to uh, support Maori rights and she thought that the the UN's uh, agreement would actually cross over that so she refused to sign it and then of course in 2010 I think it was um, John Key um, his government they did uh, sign up to it Um, I think you were you were were you still there oh I was Oh, I can tell you this little bit of the story because um, I think the politest way um, of putting it was that I was a little cross. And it's quite hard to be um, a junior minister and get really cross with the boss, Prime Minister John Key, especially so when you're a support partner and the leader of a, a party that supports the government. And precisely what happened is I knew, of course, that Helen Clark had refused to sign this UN Declaration on uh, Indigenous Rights. And just picture this. She's a UN sort of fangirl. She, everything the UN does is just whoop-de-doo for her. And, you know, she went on to do extremely well working there, got very high positions, even went to be the Secretary General. So she was really into the UN. She looked at this UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and said, no way. There's no way New Zealand's going to sign up to this. So Peter Sharples, 
And I can picture John Key doing this because John Key would never have read that declaration. Peter Sharples went off literally in the dead of night with no one knowing. No one was told. There was no press release. There was no announcement. There was no decision. Peter Sharples went off, and we only heard that New Zealand had signed up to the UN Declaration of Indigenous Rights after it was signed. And so here's me, a support partner to the John Key government, with a no surprises clause, completely blindsided. And I was so angry that um, John Key's a very affable sort of guy, he doesn't get angry. Um, and unfortunately, I got so angry and that little puffed off a bit of steam in his prime minister's office. And he said, well, look, this doesn't mean anything. It's just some UN treaty. Like, he just waved his hands and says, you know, parliament's still sovereign. And I was trying to explain to him that from now until eternity, this Declaration of Indigenous Rights will be used as a club to beat us around the head forever and ever, amen, including the government. He had no conception of that. And, of course, Peter Sharples pulled off a coup. Didn't trouble John Key. He didn't do anything about it. Uh, but New Zealand had signed up to it, and that became the impetuous then for what happened next, which is what you're telling us about, because now Jacinda Ardern is in government, and Naya Mahuta is a minister. And then what happened? Well... So what happened was that in 2019, their government decided that they would put in place a plan of action for bringing the UN declaration into effect. And so there was a cabinet meeting in March of 2019, and Nanaya Mahuta, who was the Minister of Maori Development, she was tasked with putting together a working group and then the working group was to write a report for how the declaration could be put into effect. And so on the 1st of November 2019, Hipurpur arrived and um, what was very interesting about it was uh, the people writing it were academics. Uh, some of them were family members of Nanaya Mahuta uh, they were everybody who was completely on side with um, the quite radical ideas of the Maori caucus. And the report, as I said, was, released, uh, was received in 2019, and it was never broadcast to anybody. It was never made public uh, to even the Deputy Prime Minister. It wasn't brought up during the 2020 general election. And then uh, three days before the election, Tipuni Kokiri, which is the Ministry of, of Māori Development, published uh, or received it. So they were given it just before the election and they posted it on their website uh, just before Christmas. And then uh, we started to notice various things were happening. Um, you might remember back to then, Rodney, that um, you know the Maori language was starting to be used by um, Radio New Zealand and Television New Zealand and various um, 
government departments started using Maori language in their letters to people and their names all started being called the Maori version instead of the English name of the department. And so all these weird things were going on and we couldn't figure out what was happening. And then suddenly we discovered um, the website where this uh, Hipurpua report had been a redact or a, a shortened version, 32 pages uh, or 34 pages of a 123-page document had been um, posted on the website. And we suddenly realized it was actually a, a, a blueprint to bring in tribal rule, replace democracy with tribal rule by 2040, which is the 200th anniversary of the Treaty of Waitangi. And that's pause, what was being pause. enacted... Without just, us knowing. Just pause there for a minute, Muriel, because um, all of this is so significant to me because even by the standards of this most appalling government in our history, this is entirely a new low because the UN Declaration of Indigenous Rights has something like 46 or 40-odd articles, which we're committed to, thanks, John Key. But chiefly what it is suggesting is that Indigenous peoples have the right to self-determination. And what it means is their own government, their par a parallel government. Um, and so the idea is Aboriginal people can run things their way for themselves. That's what new John Key signed up to. Now, this report, to give effect to this, setting up the report went to the Cabinet, and we know that Mr Peters was there, but Cabinets are busy. He never noticed particularly what was going on, particularly Mr Peters. He'd be, he doesn't notice... He's not a busy man in cabinet, put it that way. He'd be doing his thing and not worrying about what anyone else was up to. So it just sailed through with a tick. The report was received in the year before the election. This is extraordinary. And it was set on. No I think it was enacted. I think various bits of it were starting to be quietly rolled out. But yes. There was certainly no yes. Um, indication no, of it that was going on. It was, yeah. it was happening in government departments and in government policy, but there was no trumpets blaring saying that we're having this big here, poor, poor break, and now things are going to be different. We just started noticing that everything was different. The Deputy Prime Minister tells us that he was completely oblivious and kept in the dark about this report and the fact that it was being surreptitiously um, implemented. There was absolutely no discussion of this report in election year. So here's the Labour Party and Jacinda Ardern campaigning Absolutely no mention that they'd had this report uh, prepared. We were implementing it by stealth. And then here, the total deviousness. I mean, this is 
the whole report itself is a constitutional outrage because it's such a constitutional uh, overturning of every element of our Westminster system. But then, in an election year, heading into the election period, like three months out, you don't announce new policy because there's going to be potentially a change of government. So you just do what's called sort of housekeeping. Um, um, yeah, I forget the phrase that you use, but it's the idea that you're just sort of managing government. You're not implementing new stuff. Blow me down. The civil servants put this report up on their webpage three days out from the election. No one would have noticed. So that, I think I think they received it. They received it three days before the election. Okay. And then uh, we, we're we not sure when it went up. I've used the Wayback Machine just to double-check, and the first indication is it was just before Christmas. It was the 22nd of December okay. that it went up on the website. My own recollection when I was looking into this at the time was that it was just before the election. But as I say, um, anyway, the, the big point is the government department received it before the election. Nobody told the public. No one told the public that it was going to be implemented after the election if Labour won again. And so we were kept completely in the dark. And as you say, it's a constitutional change document. And normally when there's major constitutional change, which, which this is, Normally, the public have to be involved and the public have to give their mandate for it. They have to give approval either through an election or by a referendum. And because this is mucking with democracy, this is changing our democracy, it's diminishing our rights as New Zealanders, and it all happened without our knowledge, without our approval, they just bulldozed it through. It was astonishing, Rodney. <laughs> Yes, and they couldn't let Winston Peters know, even though he's in the Cabinet and Deputy Prime Minister, because he would have smacked them around the head all the way to the election, right? So They, they would kept, have lost the election. They would have lost the election. Yeah. Oh, my it's goodness. It's so significant if he'd have gotten hold of it and understood what it was, which he would have, because it's you know pretty clear once you once you read it, and he if he'd have had the time, if it was done, you know, in enough time before election day to be able to raise the alarm of what was being planned secretly, I don't think they would have won the election, even though everything was going in their favour. I and they knew it. I'm absolutely certain they knew that would be the result, which is why, of course, they just kept it silent, kept it quiet and undercover. And, of course, the opposition parties, uh, National and ACT, didn't know anything of it either. Um, so it didn't wasn't an election issue. They Labour get re-elected, this time with a majority, and proceed to implement this and... It's very clear now in hindsight that three waters and a two a two tiered 
racist health system where you have a Maori health system and a non-Maori health system, they are absolutely in line with Hea Pōpua. So what they've been doing now is they've been going through the Hipurpur report and ticking off um, various of the, you know, the objectives. And yes, the three waters, um, one of the objectives in Hipurpur is to give uh, past control of water to tribes. And so that's what, he, that's what Three Waters was all about. It was confiscating water assets and services from councils. It was uh, essentially national, centralising them into uh, four and now ten um, larger units so that uh, Māori could be given half the control of the um, uh, boards and then uh, full control of the what happens on the ground to water in each community um, because they're the only ones who get to um, be able to tell the people running the show exactly what they want to happen to that well or that spring or or those pipes or whatever. It's a, a dreadful situation that people don't actually realise has been written into the legislation, this um, power that's been given to local Māori um, to hold communities to ransom, really. Indeed. I'm just um, reading um, here, Pōpō, Executive Summary. And, I mean, listen to this. I'm not telling you anything, but for our listeners, here's here's a proposal. Here's a proposal. Um, Māori will have a meaningful and sometimes dominant voice in resource management decisions. So you apply to put a shed on your property, um, develop your property, um, anything. Everything has to be done through the Resource Management Act. Well, the local iwi, are going to have a meaningful and dom- and sometimes dominant voice in the decision. Not the council that you at least get to vote for or against. Isn't that extraordinary? You know, well, one of the things that, that I've struggled with is that this is all about self-interest, right? It's all about the self-interest of these tribal groups. They run multi-billion dollar business development corporations and somehow they've managed to persuade a government that they need to have half the power and control of New Zealand and over the lives of New Zealanders and yet they're working for self-interest. I just, I cannot get my head around the logic where a government would freely give democratic power to a group working, a big business group, right? Which normally the left (laughs) does not like. And yet here they are passing all this stuff to the the biggest corporations in the country virtually. Because it's interesting, isn't it? Because when they're talking about Maori doing this and Maori doing that, it is actually these creatures of statute it's these iwi corporations 
which lack transparency and accountability that will be making the decisions. It won't be, you know, your Maori neighbour um, doing this. It's not Maori doing this. It's going to be the iwi elite in these unaccountable, non-transparent corporations. Here's another little bullet point in the executive summary. Law, policy, and processes will support flourishing iwi territories. So there's going to be, New Zealand is going to be divided up into iwi territories, which are going to flourish tribally, including where iwi hapu whanau can positively contribute towards the control of, access to, and management of all lands and resources within their row, in accordance with Takanga and Matarangi Māori. Oh my goodness. So this is a return to tribalism for all of New Zealand. And we shouldn't forget that John Key and National signed us up to this because the United Nations Declaration of, for Indigenous People says Maori self-determination. And these iwi race baiters have got a hold of that, grafted on this fanciful notion that the treaty was a partnership and that it should be 50-50, and said, well, all these resources are really ours, so we should be having an equal partnership and probably a dominant say when it comes to natural resources. And here's our plan for achieving that by 2040. And, Muriel, it's underway now. It is. It's underway. They can tick off the um, troll of water to Maori. They can tick off um, controlling the health system because now... Under the new health reforms, you've got a situation where if two people are waiting for an operation and one is really, really sick, the other one isn't, but the other one is Maori and not sick, uh, they'll be given priority treatment. It's just a shocking, shocking state of affairs. So health now is determined by race, not by clinical need. And, you know, it's going to roll out across all levels of government. One of the instigators of all of this was the Office of Maori Crown Relations. They're the body that have been uh, charged, if you like, with uh, strengthening the treaty partnership, they say. It's a, a lovely, polite uh, way of saying where they're going to ram through uh, Maori control, Maori co-governance, of all government departments and then eventually of New Zealand. And if you look at the website of virtually any government department now, in there you'll see the weasel words, the um, treaty partnership, they abide by the treaty partnership. Um, they, a lot of them now have brought in co-governance bodies or boards or advisory groups. And um, in some areas, like in corrections and police, you know, they've actually instigated um, new ways of doing things uh, which are to the detriment of, of New Zealand. 
I mean, we've seen, you know, the prison population reduced by uh, 20%. People who are uh, violent enough to to be normally locked up in prison are now out on parole um, or not out on parole. They're under, um, you know, um, supervision. They're in the community instead of um, being behind bars. And, um, you know, this is only going to get worse. They want to abolish prisons. That's one of the plans in Hipurpur. Yes, and indeed the Māori Party have come out and said that. They want prisons to go by 2040. And, of course, um, this is exactly what Hipurpur is saying um, because they, Māori, are going to have self-determination. That is to say the tribes will determine uh, how things are done, not the New Zealand government. They've got a very nice picture here explaining all these things about how the uh, joint spheres work. And if you like, uh, they've got a 2019 picture and there's a big circle and it's yellow and that's the crown. And then there's a wee, wee tiny circle and that's sort of the Maori uh, governance and there's a slight overlap, and uh, it's a pinprick on the side of uh, government. Then beside that is what will happen in 2040, and the two spheres are the same size. So the iwi governance is now exactly the same size as the New Zealand government, and then there's this overlap of 50-50 and then there's these two other bits which is a little bit that'll be New Zealand government only and then a similar bit that will be iwi government only so it's for two systems existing side by side where for big chunks the iwi governments in their territories, will be the governing body. For some things, the normal government will be the governing body, I guess for non-Maori people. And then for half of it, there'll be this overlap where the iwi and the New Zealand government will be sharing decision-making with Maori having, as they say, the dominant voice. And New Zealand will be set up according to iwi boundaries. That's um, right. And um, the interesting thing, too, from what I can glean, is that, you know, because it's this 50 50 uh, treaty partnership, which of course is a complete and utter fabrication, but anyway, they've made it up in the government is going along with it. Um, theoretically, what that means is that half the money will go towards the Maori government and the other half will go to the Crown government. And so, you know, half the money will go to a small percentage of the population with the other half going to, you know, the vast majority. <laughs> mm. And mm. That, So that's the, their end objective as well. Well, Tipati Maori Party are following here Pua Pua and their justice policy, and they say that it's going to be 
so they're going to have a Maori Justice Authority, and it will take 50% of the money now allocated to the police and 50% of the money now allocated to corrections, and they will administer that for Maori justice according to Maori protocols, and the remaining 50% will be for the rest of us. I don't know. It's how, just outrageous, isn't it? It's, I don't know. The whole thing is so outrageous. <laughs> well, it's quite hard to follow because you're looking at this and you're thinking, I get attacked by a Maori fellow. Do I go off to the Maori Justice Authority or can I take him to the normal courts? Well, the normal courts have lost half their funding. I mean, yeah. the prisons have lost half their funding. Um, if you're married, do you go to prison? I mean, none of this gets asked or explained, and we sound nutty for talking like this, but we're actually just reading the report that is being implemented and trying to understand it and ask questions about it. The government seems to have neither supported it or repudiated. They just don't talk about it. The media have never reported, um, what would you say, in executive format what this report's on about, and yet it's barreling down uh, the runway. I guess, Muriel, the new, the legacy media in New Zealand are contractually bound not to critique this. That's right. Um, one of the conditions of um, funding from the $55 million public interest journalism fund that uh, Labour introduced was that the recipients had to promote the treaty partnership. So instead of the mainstream media as you say, scrutinising all of this and holding power to account and saying, well, hang on a minute, you know, you, you're doing all of this in the name of this 50-50 treaty partnership which doesn't exist, therefore what the hell is going on? Um, they've just turned a blind eye. And um, uh, there were an odd article, right? Very, very few and it's really been up to the alternative media, the independent media, if you like, to have raised concern about these things and raised awareness. And, I mean, that's the only reason that people actually know about Hipuapua. It's because of the really fantastic work that a lot of very concerned people have put into making sure that the public find out what's going on. And you have people like myself who are normally, until recently, fully engaged with following what government's doing. But I don't follow it any longer because I'm sure, I don't know, get an ulcer or something. Like it just is so upsetting to even read the stuff. This reads like um, a fifth form project of if you've got a bunch of students who had been in, inculcated with the treaty being partnership and how would, and you said to them, oh, well, how would you make this partnership work um, in reality? This is the sort of rep report you'd expect some naive, indoctrinated um, 
school children to come up with. But this is a report done for government and implementing government, and it's upending everything that we believe in in a Westminster democracy and has returned New Zealand to some hybrid where part of it is being run like it's pre-1840 with these corporations in charge. Is, if I, I mean, that's what it is. Public, that's with, right, but without with, the public actually understanding what on earth is going on. That's and, the, the, sort and, of the key thing. And then if you don't understand what the hell is happening, it's very difficult to know who to blame, what to blame, or what the answer is, you know. And so they've managed to basically pull the wool over everyone's eyes. I mean, people are waking up to it now. And fortunately, of course, in election year, a lot of people who haven't taken much notice of politics, they sort of tune in. And so the awareness is growing, and that, to be honest, is probably one of the reasons why Labour is continuing to slide in the polls, because Indeed. people suddenly realise what a terrible thing they've done to the country. So let's go through this with the parties. We won't worry about the Maori Party, because they'll be here poor, poor on speed. Do we know what the Labour Party's position on here poor, poor is? They haven't really said anything. Um, <laughs> Willie that, Jackson. Isn't that Willie funny? Jackson, I know. He, he was tasked last year with coming up with um, an action plan. In other words, take he poor, poor and uh, pull out a number of objectives, put it into a, a document and then ask the New Zealand public whether we agreed with it or not. So it was meant to be... So he consulted Iwi to come up with this document that then he would use to consult with all New Zealanders. And uh, from what I've heard, um, what happened was that the document or the, um, the report that he received from Iwi was so radical that he couldn't just carry on with his, with his idea. He had to send it back and ask them to tone it down, but they didn't want to do that, and so the whole thing just stalled. So as far as we're aware, um, if they become the government again, it'll be full steam ahead for all of this stuff. But we've only just got a taste of it now, and as I said, it's now the framework's been set up in all government departments. They've now been reaching out into any organisation that is associated with the government. This is the Office of Māori Crown Relations. And um, so if you're a, an, a, a private sector group but you've got um, to be registered, for example, real estate agents, they're now expecting them to do cultural competency programmes and, and learn all about their version of the treaty, the treaty partnership. And that's compulsory. <laughs> the Lawyers um, Law Society is looking at uh, regulating or bringing the treaty into a new new legislation to regulate lawyers. I mean, it's architects everywhere. And charities, it's the same. If you're a, a charity, you have to be registered with the government. And if you look at charity websites now, 
You see a lot of them already uh, talking about the treaty partnership and many of them have got co-governance boards. It's everywhere. And this presumably is why there's been this big uptick in uh, Maori things in the curriculum. So um, it's not science now, it's sort of Maori spirituality, it's Maori language, it's everywhere you look in the curriculum, it's Maori. Right. It's terrible. And so what they've been, what's happening is that because of all these new agreements that are going on everywhere, it's given um, activists and, and people with, um, you know, very passionate views on all this carte blanche to go ahead and sort of ram it through everywhere. And, uh, you know, and, and then if anyone stands up to it and says, well, hang on a minute, what are you doing? Well, you're just a racist. And so careers have been destroyed, um, livelihoods have been destroyed because people actually had the guts to stand up to some of this. And um, but essentially they wipe wipe the way clean and they just bulldoze down there. So, what is Nationals' position on here, poor poor? National, um, Christopher Luxon has come out and he said that National is opposed to co-governance of public services. So if he's true to his word, what that would mean is that all that work that the Office of Maori Crown Relations has been doing by putting all the stuff into all these government departments, by rights, that should all go. It should be removed. The Maori Crown Relations Office should be closed down and all of the, uh, the remnants out in the private sector, that should all go as well. The uh, Maori Health Authority uh, would go. Three Waters would go. Um, the RMA reforms would go because they uh, go a long way towards the Hipuapua goals. And I'm sure there's other legislation that's been brought in that I'm not necessarily aware of that's got a lot of this stuff in it. Theoretically, that should all go. What Luxon has said is that um, National will still be in favour of the co-management of uh, some natural resources to do with treaty settlements like um, mountains or rivers or national parks and so on. Um, but as far as uh, co-governance and the public service or you know services to New Zealanders is concerned, it would go. That's as far as I understand it. It hasn't. Um, I haven't seen any documents saying that, but I've heard him um, being interviewed, and that right. he seems and pretty, pretty strong on it. And our old party that we started in Muriel, what's X position? Well, X position is is a bit complicated. Um, oh dear. They want mm. yeah. Um. David Seymour wants to uh, draft up a treaty principles piece of legislation and, um, and pass it through Parliament and then get um, the public to agree to it or not agree to it. And his treaty principles are things like um, 
the treaty is all about equality. So it's putting in place good, sound policy in terms of a democracy and the freedom of people and the removal of anything to do with race. It's about equality. But the mechanism he wants to introduce is a piece of legislation uh, that goes through Parliament. And my response to that after watching Parliament, you know, when we were in there and then all these years since, is that the moment you put stuff into legislation, you then run the risk of future governments coming in and tweaking it Mm. so that it means the exact opposite of what you intended, mm. and also of the courts um, tweaking it so it means the exact opposite. And I'll give you a specific example. Um, when the uh, national government uh, repealed crown ownership of the foreshore and seabed, they threw out the law that Helen Clark had put in, and they replaced it with the Marine and Coastal Area Act. And in that act, there was a test. If anybody wanted to claim a piece of coast, coastline, number one, they had to hold it according to tikanga. And number two, they had to have held the area exclusively and continuously since 1840. So in other words... A tribe had, had to have held it exclusively, which means essentially that they had to make sure no one else used that particular area. They had to have uh, been in charge of it since 1840. So in other words, it was ancestral land. Nobody else went there, and therefore um, there might be a case where they gained customary title to the coast which gave them a number of specific rights, which are akin to ownership, really. So when National passed that law, they assured New Zealand that the number of uh, successful claims for customary title would be minimal. In other words, most of the coast would not be claimed by anybody. It would still uh, belong to all Kiwis and just a min minor part of the coast and remote areas would would go to tribal groups. But because they put the word tikanga in there, what happened is that the first claim, 600 claims flooded in, by the way, because um, uh, Maori thought, well, we can gain ownership of the coast. They're all overlapping. So immediately, you know, me watching the legislation, I said, aha, they're all going to be ruled out because they're overlapping and the, the, um, the test is you have to have exclusively owned the coast. You couldn't have owned it exclusively if your neighbour claimed it as well and said, we've used it, you see. Anyway, what happened is that the first case uh, went to the High Court and the judge ruled that the only test that mattered was whether or not the group had held it according to tikanga and that the exclusive and continuous ownership since 1840, that didn't count. And so it was only if you held it according to tikanga. And in their wisdom, the High Court didn't even hear the evidence about whether they had held it according to tikanga. The tikanga bit is done by tikanga experts that the claimants all have to agree to. And they then uh, talk to the claimant groups who are all, all 
competing for the same bit of coast, and they decide which of those groups had held it, according to Tikanga. They tell the High Court, and the High Court just accepts it. And so it ended up with a piece of um, 40k coastline near Apotiki. It ended up with about 14, I think it is, different groups all owning different parts of it. Um, and so, yes, they, they all gained access to it or, or were awarded title to it. And the test of exclusivity and, um, you know, continuous ownership never even came up. So that's what um, has happened because they've put tikanga into the law. It's changed everything. So we've actually appealed that case to the Court of Appeal and the uh, Court of Appeal is going to release their judgment um, apparently this month. And our argument is, hang on a minute, there were two tests in the law. Uh, the judge in the High Court only looked at one test. He should have looked at both. And um, so if we win the case, then uh, the judge will have to uh, do the second test. But I tell you what, it's a dog's breakfast. It's a complete and utter dog's breakfast. And um, I have no confidence at all that the whole coast won't end up in, in um, tribal ownership. And that's the territorial sea as well. And so um, I think it needs a law change, Rodney. I think that uh, someone needs to come in, repeal the Marine and Coastal Area Act and take us back to Crown ownership of the foreshore and seabed. That was that attorney, Chris Finlayson, wasn't it? Um, yes. Oh, my goodness. So it's typical, isn't it, that Labor come along. This was all too too much for Helen Clark and National came along and did it and made it worse, thinking, telling us that they were fixing it. They did the same with the resource management. Oh, my goodness. It is. This is why you can't have any confidence in Chris Luxon. Um, this is very, very tough stuff, Muriel. Very, very tough stuff. And like we know that this present government has fanned expectations for Māori and that any move to reverse he pua pua will be seen as anti-Māori and an attack on Māori, and the iwi corporations will be whooping up these hotheads, and there will be protests galore should National try and move on it. And, of course, um, it, it could readily make uh, New Zealand without stretching it, ungovernable. I think there's a couple of things. One is that we have to remember that iwi represent only a small proportion of Māoridom. Mm -hmm. So I heard um, even Willie Jackson, to be honest, before he was a minister, uh, talking about how you know, the tribal groups really probably only represented about 10% of Māoridom. And so, you know, they might jump up and down and they'll certainly rack up the troops. But I think there'd be a whole lot of um, Māori who hate what's going on as well and would like Indeed. to see an end to this tribal power grab because that's what it is. Well, and maybe... So maybe the... Yeah. Yeah, maybe National, when they get in, should uh, contract the lamestream legacy media, give them $100 million, 
and say that as part of this contract, you will criticise <laughs> here, poor, poor. You will criticise the concept that there's partnership. Otherwise, you don't get the dosh. Um, I mean, that's the ridiculousness of it, Doctor Newman. Uh, we're on Really Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. I've been talking to Dr. Muriel Newman. Um, alarming stuff about here, Pua Pua, and it's what's at stake this election and whether we can get a government to reverse this and just return to the simple idea that we had with the treaty in 1840, which is one people, uh, one crown, and one law for all, with everyone treated equally, irrespective of their tribal affiliations which now everyone has to ostentatiously state their tribal affiliations as that is their most important thing in their life and on their CV is who they fuck a papa to. Um, I've never heard of anything so ridiculous living in a free society that who your great-great-grandfather is should matter. I mean, it's going right back to the idea of royalty or um, tribal chieftainships being handed down from father to son and everyone else being cut out of the loot because they've been touched by God or something. Um, whereas we all want to be citizens, treated equally before the law, not having a special folk amongst us. Uh, Dr. Newman, everyone should go to Dr. Newman's page, which is the New Zealand Centre for Political Research, ncpr.com. It's a wonderful site. There's lots of articles there, but more particularly, you can sign up to Muriel's newsletter. Heading into the election, it's going to be hot. Uh, coming out of the election, it's going to be hot because Muriel's going to be casting a very sceptical and a very practiced eye over what government is up to. Um, she, Whatever she writes, it's always a treat. Uh, Muriel, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I wish you all the best. Let's hope uh, that we can reverse uh, what's happened these past few years and get New Zealand back on track um, just as National's promising uh, and let's hope that you have good strength and wind in your sails because if anyone's going to keep them on track it's going to be you Muriel. Thank you Rodney it's been a real pleasure. You're on Rally Tech Radio it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember send us a text 2057 email me at inbox at that was the incomparable and the wonderful Dr. Muriel Newman. Are we blessed to have her on our side? We are indeed. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. The greatest threat to our democracy and our country is the belief that someone else will save it. RCR is on a mission to revive honest media and now you too can help make that happen. Introducing the Foundation Members Club, the easiest way to support RCR and be rewarded for doing so. Receive exclusive benefits only for members, including your very own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind-the-scenes discussions. And also our all-new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes, delivered to your email inbox every morning keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio slash members and see how you too can join the mission that's making a difference. You're on Reality Check Radio. Um, you can email me at 2057. No, you can text me at 2057. 
you can email me at inbox at rallycheck.radio. The reason for that little fluff was I've got a listener favorite back. And sometimes I like to call her Sally, but her actual name is Kathy Jameson. And I know that I'm going to get texts and emails because Kathy is a star. Kathy, good morning. Good morning. How are you doing? Look, um, I actually went to bed last night excited because I got Kathy Jameson on because you are like the nerd's nerd. You are the person <laughs> that does the deep dive into the data and then explains it all. And you're sitting there listening to you talk and it's like, oh my goodness. Oh no. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. And when you email me, say, oh, look, I, I might have something here. I've been so excited. So um, I'm fizzing a little bit. That's all. <laughs> And I promised myself not to call you Sally. But to be fair, listeners can't see you. I can see you. And you do look a little like a Sally. <laughs> you look like a, you look like you could be a Sally or a Kathy, but I've got Kathy now in my name. Kathy, tell us what you've discovered. Take us through it very slowly. Um, and take us through how you came to discover this. Well, Beginning of last month, I put in an OAA request. That's an Official Information Act request, which they're required yes. by law to answer with any information they have. This is government, right? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, look, I didn't at the time sort of have any specific reason for asking it. But as you know, I, I trawl through all of the questions that other people ask and um, just keep an eye on what's happening there. And I realised that, you know, you know, there's often talk about overseas or, you know, that that all the products are not the same. And I don't necessarily buy into that, but I thought, well, nobody's actually asked that question. And so I put in an OIA request and my question was, has the product composition of community changed at all for the over 12s between its introduction in February of 2021 and the introduction of the bivalent in March of 2023? That's a very straightforward question. Yeah. And who did you put that question to? I put it to, well, I wanted to get to MedSafe, but to get to MedSafe, you have to, I had to put submit it to the Ministry of Health. Okay. So, so there, that wasn't the only question. So I then went on to say, so if so, can you by composition category give me the batch numbers when they were first imported into New Zealand? where they were distributed to and when they were first administered into consumers. I don't like that word, but that's the word they use. Mm. So that was the question I submitted at the beginning of August. And I, I got an answer back and um, from Chris James, who was the head of MedSafe, and he, his answer was, one sentence, the qualitative formulation of the 0.5 milligram per mil product has not changed since its initial approval. Well, that's a red flag. Yeah, yeah. Because qualitative 
actually, what does that even mean? It means there's well, been a quantitative change, <laughs> but not a qualitative change. Well, yeah, I, I'm exactly, and I'm not exactly sure what that qualitative that's, word means. That's not even. That's not even. It's incoherent. Well, that that word qualitative was interesting, and so was the insertion of 0.5 milligram per mil product. Ah, so, so that's a particular product. Yeah. So so I sort of went back and I said, look, I'd like Chris James to revisit um, my OAA request, please, because I did not restrict my question to a 0.5 milligram per mil product. Um, and I did not ask um, for, you know, whether there'd been a composition change in respect of any qualitative descriptor. So no. can you go back to my initial question and answer it? Now, what was interesting was by the time he answered me, I had discovered something I didn't know when I put the question in and and that was that there had been um there were two different color capped vials for the um 12 and up no. population one was purple and that was the initial product that um was first brought into the country um, and had to be diluted and kept at ultra-cold temperatures. Now, I, I was reading through the data sheet and I thought, what's this grey-capped product? What's that? So there was this introduction of a grey-capped vial which did not need to be diluted. So, so that sort of kept me busy for a couple of days. Now, and do you remember when we heard there was this announcement and I, it must, now that I know what I know, it must have been near the end of 2021 or the beginning of 2022 that it didn't need to be kept at ultra-cold temperatures anymore? No, I don't remember any of that. Uh, well, there was, there was talk of, I remember this announcement by Ashley Bloomfield that there was, a you know, something had made. Sir Ashley. Yes, sir, Ashley, that, that didn't need to be kept at ultra-cold temperatures. Now, um, I think that was this change where this grey-capped product was introduced. I mean, I certainly didn't pick up at the time that it was a different product. I, I think I just assumed that they discovered that it was stable and they didn't yes. need the ultra cold temperatures, yes. but, but perhaps I wasn't perhaps I wasn't listening closely enough. But you know, I'd have to I'd have to say I was listening pretty closely, and if I didn't pick it up, then I would question whether that you know enormous team of communications people that we've been paying for on the taxpayer dime perhaps weren't at the top of their game communicating mm. this message, but. That's by the by. Um, but so so 
the difference between the products, as far as I can see, is the buffer, which is sort of you've got the active ingredients, which we don't know what they are. They're sort of proprietary to Pfizer. And they're suspended in a buffer. Well, they're in a buffer in this vial, right? Now, the buffer changed at the end in December of 2021. And that's the difference between the purple cap and the grey cap. Mm. And that's so, the difference between it needing to be ultra cold. Diluted or not, dilute, yeah. or ultra cold temperatures or not. Yeah, as far as I understand it. So I went and ha- I went and had a look at the regulatory footprint. And uh, just excuse me there, Kathy. The regulatory footprint. Well, well that's my term. I, that's my term. It's kind of like, okay, well, if these things were introduced, then there has to have been, um, you know, approval of it, a data sheet, gazette notices, all that sort of thing. So that's what I mean when I say the regulatory footprint. And, yep, sure enough, sort of in December of 2021, we we had this new grey cap product introduced and it differs from the purple cap by these buffer ingredients. Um, but then I thought, well, hang on a minute, what's going on here? I'm looking at the old buffer ingredients. And so what they also did in December of 2021 was introduced a new purple cap product that still needed to be diluted, but that it had a couple of new ingredients in the buffer that the other one didn't have and they those ingredients were hydrochloric acid and sodium hydroxide now chemistry was not my favorite subject at at school and I I can't talk on it at all but that to me looks like they're sort of playing around with the pH of it somehow so now we have three products yeah we We have an original Purple cat that needs to be ultra cool and cold. Then we bring in a grey cat that doesn't need to be diluted and kept ultra cold, and it's got a different buffer. But there's also another purple cat that's got added ingredients. Yeah. Have I got that right? You have. I don't know about you, Kathy, but it sounds like it's an experiment. <laughs> well, <laughs> and live time on us. Well, it it sort of certainly looks like you know that way <laughs> because you know the New Zealand public don't were not made aware that there were different products in circulation. Now, when when there was a something published for um, the introduction of the bivalent to by IMAC, so instructions to vaccinators, they actually say at that time we you know we will not be using the purple cup the purple cat product any longer. So, but that was March of twenty twenty three. 
So, so this introduction of the grey cat product happened in December of 2021. So my question is, all the way through 2022 and possibly the first few months of 2023, how many different products did we have in circulation? Indeed. Just, I know this is obvious to you, but because I don't pay attention because I was never lining up for a vaccine, what's the bivalent one? I just knew there's that okay. word. So the, the bivalent means that it, it supposedly has um, the capacity for you to make antibodies to two different, well, sorry, no, that might not be right. It has two different strains in it. So bivalent, two two varieties. So okay. the so the initial product just had the wild type, you know, that appeared okay. in Wuhan. Whereas the bivalent that we have got and that we're using in New Zealand um, has got half and half the original wild type and the um, uh, B, uh, Omicron BA4, 5 Got it. Got it. variant. So it's producing so two things types. To, things to supposedly deal with that. So two different yeah. spike proteins are being produced. Yeah, I guess. And but. what what Saucy Wiles would say, oh, Kathy, 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 you know, poor Kathy didn't do chemistry at school. This is just, you know, an inert thing that we just suspend the actual ingredient in, and it's meaningless, right? It's just like sugar and water or a bit of salt and water. This is no big deal. Couldn't, wouldn't she? She might. Who knows? Who knows? But, I mean, this is not something I know anything about, but there was a presenta there's a presentation that I've watched by an Italian immunologist, and he talked about something that he said was the patent for the lipid nanoparticles. Yes. Now, I found the document that he was referring to, and I'm not sort of clever enough to go, oh, yes, this is definitely the patent for the lipid nanoparticles because it's another language for me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it, it did have the words in it that he was um, talking about. So I need to get you know, somebody, I've got a couple of people that I'm thinking of that I'll send it to to kind of translate it for me almost. Um, but what that talks about was a PBS buffer. And the PBS buffer is what was in the purple cat, um, purple cat vials. And it says that the lipid, it seems to be saying, and you know this is very. I have to use my words very carefully because as I'm, as I say, I can't actually understand it. But what this Italian immunologist was saying 
was that this this document says you shouldn't use a PBS buffer or sodium chloride with the lipid nanoparticles because it's unstable under physiological conditions and could aggregate. Oops. So, you know, that's that's very much, as far as I'm concerned, still to be confirmed. I'll be really clear on that. Yeah. Um, but I did listen to his presentation. That's what he said. I looked up the document by by searching in the toolbar lipid nanoparticle patent. <laughs> this thing came up. I found the words that he had highlighted in his presentation. So that's about all of the um, verifying I can do. So the uh, suggestion is this change in that solution or the buffer was for a reason. Might Possibly is trying to make it less dangerous. Making it more, quote, stable in physiological conditions, which is inside your body. Mm. And correct me if I'm wrong, the lipid nanoprotein wraps around the mRNA so that it can penetrate the cell of your body and then get to work on your metabolic machinery in the cell. And there's a suspicion, correct me again if I'm wrong, that that lipid nanoprotein may indeed be regarded as a foreign body and spike an immune response as well as, in fact, the spike protein. Have I got that? Well, sort I, of... I, I remember back, I think it was those MAC minutes, um, and they said something like, you know, that the, heart, the stability of the half-life of the lipid nanoparticles looks unusual, but considered not to be a problem because there's only going to be two doses. Oops. So that was said, I think, you know, that was documented on about the 3rd of February of 2021 when they were pushing the approval through. And I've never seen anything that goes back and looks at the safety or stability of those lipid nanoparticles now that we're, um, you know, looking at, more than two doses for a lot of people. What do you think, if you had been assiduously vaccinating or having this gene therapy or, as I call it, having just the jab, and you had been scrupulous every time a health official or Mr. Hipkin said, time for another jab, you lined up and got one, how many would you be up to in New Zealand now? Well, if you're not immunocompromised and you didn't have three in your primary dose, so if you just had um, two in your primary dose, then you would have been eligible for your first booster in um, around November. And then you could have had your second booster in July of 2022. And if you did, you could have then had your bivalent in March of this year or April of this year. So that would have you right. up to five. Um, now, I think 
How long ago was March or or, let's say April now? May, June, July, August. So so the new data sheet for the bivalent sort of allows, it doesn't, in the beginning, the data sheet was just two shots and then two shots and one booster. Um, And then they never amended the data sheet, which I've talked about before for that second booster. They just amended the Medicines Act to allow for it to be done off-label. But when the data sheets came out for the um, bivalent, they were designed in such a way that it was open-ended. And as long as there was an interval, uh, which I can't remember whether that interval is four or six months, um, then a person could just keep getting them. Deepest creepers. So, and so, yeah, what did I say? So was that five? Five. five. You could have had five. And they yeah. said it'd be okay. And this is them if because we're only anticipating two. Now, we are following you. I should just tell people that are tuned in that you're on Radley Check Radio on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We've got the wonderful, gorgeous Kathy Jameson, who's been looking at the changing formulation of the jab that we've had in New Zealand. And we're up to four types. Everyone is familiar that a bivalent came out, which was to attack two varieties of um, COVID. But there's also been shifts in the buffer and different caps. And there was a shift to a new buffer and then there was a purple cap that kept it. So there's sort of three circulating. And Kathy was alerted to this because she got an obfuscatory reply in one sentence, which had two red flags in it from MedSafe. And on her own efforts, found out through the regulatory footprint or all the documents put up describing it, that there were these three. And then she'd sought clarification under the Official Information Act back to MedSafe. And we haven't got an update from that. Have we heard back from MedSafe? No, we've had a bit of argy-bargy since then. Oh, I love your (laughs) argy-bargy. When you say argy-bargy, I get a wee quiver down my spine because it's always fun with you. I can imagine... I can imagine there's a team of bureaucrats sitting at their little cubicles and they say, uh-oh, we've got another email from Kathy Jameson and sort of there's buzzers sound in Wellington and they bring in the spin doctors and the political operatives because Kathy Jameson's emailed us. Tell us about the argy-bargy. Well, so so when I went back and I said, look, I, I, I want you to revisit or ask Chris James to revisit that answer, please, because, you know, my my question was, has the product composition changed? I didn't ask in relation to um, whether it was, point, you know, 0.5 milligram per mil products, and I didn't ask with regard to a qualitative descriptor. So then I got back um, an answer that said details regarding quantitative formulations are withheld under 92B2, 
as I've considered the countervailing public interest in releasing this information and consider it does not outweigh the need to withhold at that time, you know, words that we've all committed to memory. So I wasn't very happy about that because um, my my question was, has the product composition changed? Mm. That's a yes or no mm. answer. I'm not I'm not asking for qualitative or quantitative. So um and now somebody had very kindly who'd been following my request and they must have been as exasperated as me because they had made an annotation and they tagged in this report which is the Ombudsman Commercial Information Guide of August 2019 and it was actually really good because it said Things like a mere assertion of prejudice will not be sufficient and normal, vague, unsubstantiated references to commercial sensitivity or confidentiality. Agencies must be able to demonstrate how release of the information of issue would be unlikely to unreasonably prejudice that position. So so when I went back to them after after that, I, I, I quoted that that it's not good enough just to say, um, you know, we we withhold because we've considered the... I, the I pulled down the cone of silence blanket and just to clear this, they have to be able to explain why this. Yeah. And then? Yeah, well, I, I sort of wrote quite a long letter um, because now what did... Yeah, so it all, this report also says um, if Section 9.2 um, is, sub, is su it's subject to a public interest test and agencies must consider the countervailing public interest and if the public interest in release outweighs the need to withhold, the information must be released and there are public interest considerations and one, and they are transparency in the conduct of public sector procurement, very, very relevant in this situation, accountability for regulatory agency function. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to come back to that one in a minute. Um, and promoting public safety and consumer protection. Mm, all very important. They're all very important. And the report then goes on to say, if an agency is a regulator, which MedSafe is, it may hold commercially sensitive information about the quality of a product or the practices of an organisation. There are strong public interest arguments in allowing access to information that will help protect the public from unsafe products or practices. Now, I'm not I'm not saying that their practices are unsafe, but what I did point out to them in the response was that there's a very strong public interest argument if there have been differing products in circulation. Absolutely. And 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 showed them a, uh, evidence of a product insert from the United States where the product insert actually says, you know, there are two different products, this one containing this and they're buffer ingredients and this one containing this. 
ask your vaccinator which one is being administered. So in the US, they're being transparent with the product insert. I mean, I'm not sure whether in practice the person getting the vaccine in the US actually gets to see the product insert unless they ask for it. But it's Um, there at least. But it's there. You're asking for it and it's being hidden. But it's not just being hidden up front because their first reply was obfuscatory, deliberately designed to mislead. And then their second reply was to pull down this commercial thing. So they're desperately working to prevent this information going out, grabbing hold of straws each time. Mm. And there you are doggedly pursuing it. And um, when they're doing this, they have to be doing it for a reason. Because if there was nothing suspicious, they could answer. If there's nothing... If there was nothing to be embarrassed about, they'd just say, here you go, here's what we've got. Oh, boy. So then what happened when you explained what the ombudsman says about these matters? Well, I'm still waiting to get a reply. What what I then went on to say is I, I, I reiterated my initial request and I sort of labelled all of the questions, you know, one through to four, and and sort of outlined why I thought what they had said didn't apply because yeah. um, they weren't, you know, question one was just a yes or no answer. Has the product composition changed? Yes. Um, question two was, you know, if so, um, please provide, you know, by composition category, batch numbers um, and when they first arrived in the country, you know, and I said that, you don't need to give me any quantitative formulation. You just need to, you know, give the composition category a name and list the batch numbers and the dates. Question three, same thing as, you know, where were they um, distributed to by, by composition category? Where did those batch numbers go in the country? Um and to be administered, and on what dates? Same thing. It's a composition category, batch numbers, and the dates. So none of their answers made any sense compared to the question that I had asked. No. So what's that led you to conclude? Well, I... I can't conclude any more other than what you just said at this point, yes. which is it looks like they're being deliberately obfuscated. How would you say that word? Obfuscatory. And, I've and got a word I can say. Wow, and they don't, they don't want to answer my question, which makes me a bit uncomfortable and disturbed. <laughs> well, it's particularly disturbing because this was a product that was mandated. Hmm. This was a product that people were required to take to have a social life and oftentimes to keep their job and career and their house. And we live in an age where government is supposed to serve us 
and to be open and transparent. And where they're not open and transparent, they actually have to have a very good reason that's in the public interest. These guys, whose only interest should be to protect us, when you ask them the question, were obfuscatory, and then pulled down any old grab bag out of the act and asserted that, in contradiction to everything that the ombudsman has told them mm. about how they should behave. Meanwhile, there's been these varying batches uh, injected into the population. Who knows who's got what batch? People don't know. They've not been told. They've not even been told that there's a different batch. And we're told, don't worry, we're the source of truth. Trust us. Follow the science. And they wonder why we have this deep unease and this deep level of trust, which I have never had before. Mm. Mm. Like, because the deliberate misleading of us, which is what is happening to you now. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll just maybe say something in response to what you just said. There's a regulatory footprint that indicates that there were, um, through 2022, different products available for administration and approved. We don't know what went where. We don't know what was used. That's what I'm trying to find out. And if I had been vaccinated, I couldn't, I should be able to go back and say, ha, huh, I see there were three circulating. Which one did I get? Well, um, yeah, yeah, you should be. It's What's interesting is um, there was something came out of South Africa in the last couple of weeks. I haven't looked into it deeply, but I think did they go to court and yes. get the contract? Yes. So all the previous contracts that have been circulating and supposedly leaked, so we were never really sure about their um about their sort of validity, had always had this claw this phrase in it where um the purchaser agrees not to do any serialization. And that South African um, contract, as far as I can see, has that in it also. What's that now, mean? Well, I don't know exactly what it means, but it sounds like you're not going to sort of, you know, serial number or batch number. You're not going to kind of wow. um, hold record of that against... So Rodney Hyde had uh, number XY2356 on such and such a date. Kathy uh, Jameson had ACDXYZ123 on such and such a date. That would be what I'd take to be a serial. Well, they seem, yeah, they seem to be, I mean, I think people's medical records are holding their batch number, but... Is it something, I mean, my question is, is it sort of 
batch numbers against adverse events or batch numbers against product type? You know, what does that actually mean? Um, I don't know what it actually means, but I find it a very interesting sort of statement to potentially have been included in um, the Pfizer contract. You know, we don't want you looking at what serial numbers are doing what. <laughs> we'll do that. It's kind mm. of says to me. Um, so where to from here, Kathy? Well, so I'm waiting. I'm waiting to hear back from um, the OIA team or Chris James. What was interesting was the last response I got, whereas it said that, you know, the countervailing, the, the, the public interest doesn't outweigh the need to withhold it this time. Someone had considered that and they said, I consider that it does not. But the letter itself was signed by the OIA services team. So I asked for clarification about who was referring to themselves as I um, because I'd like to know who's actually saying that yes. the public interest doesn't outweigh the need to withhold. Mm. So I thought that, you know, because I, when I'm on FYI putting in these questions, I go by Catherine Jameson, so C-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-E, and Jameson with an IE. So if anyone wants to go on to FYI and look up my name, they'll see the OIA requests I've put in. So they can look at this whole string. Now, my next step, I imagine, is going to be going to the Ombudsman, and we all know what how, the, long, that takes. What, how long that takes. But, you know, I'll do it because I think it's just um, something that needs to be done in this case because it's that important, even if it's just a matter of record rather than result. But, um, you know, if anyone wants to annotate <laughs> this string and say that they think, you know, that they're very interested and they're a member of the public, um, you know, if we had a lot of those. Knock yourself out. So that yeah. is on the website fyi. Dot org. Dot, yeah, fyi.org.nz. And they can search on your name, Catherine Jameson. Yeah. And up it pops. I um I discovered a trick early on in my laxer day, or what would I say, lackluster political career, which was um rather delicious. And we used to have written parliamentary questions. And you'd put in a written parliamentary question to the minister, and they had five working days to get back to you. And I'd put in hundreds. I loved it. And you'd often get a bland answer. So then I put in official information act request for all the emails, memos, verbal communications. I had a lovely list um, that were to do from officials and staff and all the rest of it around the question. Oh, what a treasure trove of information because I remember in one particular case, the minister had given me a one-sentence answer to my question, which was like your one, just to uh, you know, go away. There were pages and the civil servants had written the answer for him in full. 
right? And he had declined to put that answer back to me in Parliament. But he had to reveal it under the Official Information Act. <laughs> and they were in those days not so careful about the Official Information Act and there were emails saying, oh, we can't release this to run the hide. He'll put this in the paper. <laughs> Which is rather good. So I'm suggesting that perhaps you should also put in an Official Information Act request for all the emails and communications and phone calls that they've had and name all the Taught of people that they would talk to and preparing each of those responses because there's got to be yeah. a paper trail. Mm. Now, funnily enough, by the time I became a minister, officials had got really good at putting little post notes on everything and also giving oral briefings that they then can't remember. Mm. And the little post notes could get pulled off official documents now look at this minister this is bad or whatever and just get pulled off so it wouldn't become part of the record and so they've developed delicious ways of getting around the official information act um such as that but i think that you might find a wee treasure trove by seeking the communications around the answer that he's a good suggestion yeah um I should also say that I had a funny thing when I was a minister because what I chose to do was as soon as something had gone to cabinet, I just banged it up on a web page. So I just had a policy of releasing everything after a cabinet meeting without care, everything. No one would look at it because they always think that bad stuff's hidden. I put the bad stuff out first because they never, no one would go, no, no, it was Phil Twyford who was always chasing me. And he was too lazy to go through hundreds of pages of documents to find the good stuff, right? And then six months later, he would put in a request for my stuff, some of which was quite damning, actually. And I'd say, no. I released that six months ago. <laughs> and the media would all lose interest, right? Because clearly it can't have been very interesting if it had been sitting on a web page for six months. And, of course, that's what MedSafe should be doing. <laughs> well, if, they were, if they were clean and if they were up front, you just put everything out so that Kathy Jameson controls through and read everything to her heart's content and then you say, look, we can't put this up because it's a painted or it's commercially sensitive or whatever. Okay, there's a line removed. But it's when they get obfuscatory, where they use every little wiggle thing that they have to stop you seeing it, that's when there's no good reason for that. No. There's only bad reasons for that. Yeah, that's what I and think. Unfortunately, you and I and a great many New Zealanders including our listeners, a great many amongst them, we're now deeply distrustful and deeply suspicious. And they have been playing with us and what they've been sticking in their arms, they won't even tell us. Mm. Mm. Oh, my goodness. Well, Kathy, 
Um, is there anything else you would like to cover with us? Oh, I see you have well, got something. Well, I just want to go back to remember when I was reading off the relevant public interest considerations and um, there was one that was accountability for regulatory agency function and I said I'll come back to that. Well, very topically, <laughs> um, as you were just saying, you know, if you were MedSafe, you'd just put it out there in plain sight. Well, this is what they've got on their on their web page. In carrying out its functions, MedSafe is accountable to the Ministry of Health and through the Ministry to the Minister of Health. That's what you'd expect. It is also accountable to the pharmaceutical industry for those activities which are funded by fees collected from the industry. Hmm. Now, did you were you on the understanding that our medical regulator, medicines regulator, was accountable to the pharmaceutical industry? I would have thought it's directly not accountable to the pharmaceutical industry. I would have thought we are there to regulate the pharmaceutical industry and to keep them honest. They can't be accountable to the pharmaceutical industry. Also, the fact that the pharmaceutical industry pay them a fee is for the purposes of going through the process so they can sell their product. Mm. They are not a customer. They're mm. a supplier, and MedSafe is a regulator. It is not. It cannot be accountable to those that it is regulating. That's like saying, um, oh, I'm going to be putting in um, some pipes down the road uh, that are carrying gas, and they need to be checked by the people that check these things to ensure that they're safe for the public, and I have to pay them the fee to check it to see that it's safe from the product that, to the public. That's part of my doing the business. And then the person that's checking that pipeline says, oh, I'm accountable to the person whose pipes I'm checking, or the engineer that's checking that the building's safe. He's, he, he or she is not accountable to the building owner. That's crazy stuff. And, of course, when talking about a building owner versus a pharmaceutical industry, which has a history of doing very, very bad stuff, yeah, well, I was quite surprised to read that MedSafe is accountable to the pharmaceutical industry. <laughs> but it explains a few things. It's a bit like the minister getting up in front of you at church saying he's accountable to the devil because he's trying to regulate him or get him under control or something. Do they say anything about the public and being accountable to the public? I haven't got the page up, but not that I recall. No, I'll have another look. Um, I'll send I'll send you that link too, so you can. I am it. accountable. MedSafe is accountable to the farm. So that's like the pharmaceutical industry can call them in and say, "Account to us for that decision." I'm speechless. Hmm. You're wonderful. Anything else, Kathy? Uh, no, that's it for today. 
Look, um, I do want you to keep in touch because I'm sure MedSafe are busy away, bearing, beavering away. Um, I, if having had it explained, listeners may want to go on fyi.org. I can't remember. It might be fyi.org.nz, but it's a very popular site. So if you Google FYI, you'll come up. Search for Catherine Jameson, and you'll see these trail of um, questions would have put through the site to MedSafe. And you can add there that you'd quite like to know the answers too, because that adds weight to the question and also adds weight to the ombudsman's interest, uh, ultimately, for when the complaint goes there. And you can also, there's a button that you can follow. So um, the request, so when I get an answer, you'd be notified. Hmm. So you can keep up with what happens. I did not know that. How wonderful. I will I will click that button. Kathy Jameson, um, the nerd of nerds, our chief nerd. I, I think I prefer to be called Sally. <laughs> <laughs> well, you look like a Sally. I, I don't know if I told you this, uh, but every time I talk to you, I feel as though I'm talking to my dear mother. You're so much like you, your way you laugh, the twinkle in your eye, your your sense of devilment your uh, pricking of authority. Oh, my goodness. It's so wonderful. Uh, I've been speaking with Kathy Jamieson, uh, who's our chief researcher. Let's say that. Um, you're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on Rally Check Radio. You can text me at 2057. Email me, inbox at rallycheck.radio. What a gem. What an insight. What the hell do MedSafe think they're doing? Goodness knows doesn't sound like it's good for us can't trust them want an easier way to listen to rcr well you can now download the brand new reality check radio app both on ios and android we've completed our beta testing and the app is now live you can visit the app stores direct or find out all you need to know at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash app. That's at realitycheck.radio forward slash app. Our test bunnies have been hard at play to ensure you have access to everything. From listening to our live broadcast, downloading some of our incredible interviews and checking out the latest blogs all from the very same app. So get listening and download the RCR app now. You're listening to Politics Explained. Back to basics in the political sandpit with Rodney Hyde and Tane Webster. Here on Radley Check Radio, it's Real Talk with uh, Rodney Hyde. Uh, remember, you can text me at 2057. You can send me an email inbox at rallycheck.radio. And we get political questions as well as gardening questions and as well as general questions. And for the political questions, we do Politics Explained, Back to the Basics in the Political Sandpit with Tane Webster. Good morning, Tane. Good morning, Rodney. How's it going? Well, I, I would bore you if you knew how um, crazy it's got sometimes in our household because we've got kids sick and, you know, one that never gets sick vomiting. But I don't want to tell you all of that because right. um, it's harrowing. And I realize that my little harrowing life is probably a good day for most people. So um, everything is good. The sun is shining. The earth is turning. Um, and we have had wonderful guests on the show. 
So I'm loving Rally Check Radio. Um, I don't get excited about the election campaign other than the sheer enjoyment of not being a part of it and of being a <laughs> sideline Sam because when you're in an election campaign, it's nerve-wracking because you're sort of anxious and there's all trouble happening and it's just, you know, it's a big adrenaline buzz, but oh my goodness, it's exhausting because you're sort of one bad story away from oblivion and um, you don't feel quite in control of things because the media can be so hateful. But there mm. you go. So all in all, we are very, very good, Tane. Tell me, what have we got in our mailbag for us? Yeah, so a listener sent in a question asking, how would Rodney suggest we best apply pressure on a likely national-led government to combat the globalist agenda? Well, that's a that's a, that's a great question, actually. Um, let me think about that for a minute. And, and, and I think it's what we're doing here. Yeah, yeah, I'd the, say that's the radio point, station. Yeah. And it's because what's happened in New Zealand in this past little while, which is extraordinary, is the legacy media have shut down citizen debate. And so there's a whole bunch of topics that do not get an airing in the legacy media. Funny enough, all of them are of a globalist nature. So they literally state, stuff in Herald and TVNZ state, oh, we are not going to entertain any criticism of climate change alarmism because it's true and real, because, 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 just because. Mm -hmm. And then likewise, you can't debate partnership and the UN Declaration of Indigenous Rights and having two sets of citizens and having two sets of government can't be debated. You can't debate um, the pharmaceutical industry. All that's off the agenda. Ha- amazingly, all the globalist stuff and people like myself and our listeners who question it, we're dismissed, we're marginalised, we're abused, and we don't have a platform. So we're disempowered. So the first thing that we need to do is literally gather together and become a community and build a platform where we can discuss and to debate. And I think we will become a force. And ultimately, it's numbers. Politics is a numbers game. And it's a numbers game in terms of the general vote. And then it's a numbers game of who turns up to the meetings, who joins the political parties. And you don't need very many to have an effect. And I think that's happening this election campaign because you just notice even poor Mr. Hipkins had to try and backpedal his truck and say, yeah, wow, it wasn't really compulsory. Mm. <laughs> now that's got to be feedback from the campaign because he's actually having to meet people. So I think mm. we're doing it. Yeah, so 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 uh, more more radio. More radio, more building up your community, more getting to know people. I mean, I love it. I go around now with my Radley Check radio cap on. And just at the weekend, I had two uh, men who I would never have suspected come up to me. I didn't know them and just desperate to talk and totally on board and asking that precise question. 
And you realise that there's a lot of people that are questioning the way New Zealand is going and can see through the fact that the media is biased. And here they are, aware of the radio station listening in, and if you wear a sign on your head, uh, they come up and talk to you. I think it's wonderful. Um, of course, politics is inherently conservative, which I think is a good thing. Uh, you don't see these great lurches um, too much. What we have seen is an unprecedented lurch over the abyss in this past, particularly three years, but past six years, which I think is unprecedented in the change of reform, and it's been a deep reform. And so it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen in one election campaign. But I think this is going to come up from the people, not come down from the politicians, because I think MMP and the legacy media have allowed our politicians like Mr. Luxon and Mr. Seymour uh, to live in a bubble, absolute in a bubble. And they think what they think and their staff think and what the media think. They think that's what everyone thinks and they dismiss us. Um, it's like in America where they declared the deplorables, like where people that think like you and I, Tane, are the unclean, the rivers of filthers and can be dismissed. Well, they're making a mistake because there's a lot of us and we're practical people who do stuff. So do you have anything specific, though, since they're saying that, and I think most people would agree that, yeah, it's going to switch to blue, right? Um, oh, yes. On a likely national-led government, anything specific? Well, the there? first thing I would do is notice that it's an election campaign and they want your vote. So the first thing I'd be doing is going along to every campaign meeting that I could and asking a question. And I'd be getting them on a, on the record and I wouldn't be letting them wiggle. And I'd be politely asking them, so what is your position on X? And um, it's pretty disappointing when uh, Luxon's very polished at saying, oh, they're on another planet. You know, when you ask them, what about men going into ladies' toilets? Oh, I don't want to be talking about toilets. You know, mm -hmm. and they, they wave it off because they're professional on camera. You go along to a candidate's meeting and you buttonhole them, literally. And you say, well, where are you on these things? Where are you? Do you think that a man can dress up as a woman, declare himself a woman, and go into the, my girl's changing sheds? Yes or no? Right? Um, do you think there's a question mark over the fact that me driving my pickup is destroying the planet? Yes or no? Get into them. I mean, it's a great opportunity. That's the first thing to be doing. And then we've got to go through their manifestos and hold them to account. Absolutely hold them to account. And we can do that because we've got a platform. Right. So there you go. That's uh, politics explained. Uh, back to the basics as if and politics in the sandpit. It is a sandpit. Um, with Tane <laughs> Webster. Thank you so much for listening. If you've got questions, send them to us, 2057 for a text. And my email is inbox radio. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on radio. You're listening to Politics Explained. Back to basics in the political sandpit with Rodney Hyde and Tane Webster.
people are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic and I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation do we end up bringing people together again and what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behavior and patterns of behavior? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Uh, remember, you can send me a text at 2057, email me inbox at radio. One of the things that's happened in New Zealand politics is we've created the politics of division. I don't recall us being politically divided like we are now. It used to be who was best for the country as a whole. And we were a group going forward. We were a country going forward as one. And the question was, who would lead us? Which political party? Which particular political leader? But now you feel with our politics and with our legacy media that we're being sliced and diced into groups. It's part of this identity politics. Um, Most notably, we were divided into those who chose to be jabbed under compulsion oftentimes and those who chose not to be jabbed, and so we had a two-class system. But we're also being divided racially, and that's terrible because we're not divided racially. We all get along. We all enjoy each other's company. We don't need to be divided in these artificial ways. We don't judge people because of their skin color, but our politics and our policies are forcing us to. They're dividing us. And we're having marry this and marry that and non-marry this and non-marry that, as though these are categories. No, they're human beings. And of course, it's done like marry are a block. They're not a block. Maori Vote National, Maori Vote Act. Maori have lots of different views. It's not a singular block of Maoriness. And, of course, it's done to make us non-Maori feel as though we're being ripped off. But we're all being ripped off, actually, Maori and non-Maori alike, because that division is being used to power our political leaders up to win elections and to enrich groups. That's why they're doing it. And at the same time, they're creating a squabble. And that squabble will become real because it's over and over and over and over again. It's the same with things like oh, policy. Every policy, it's like not an argument about the policy. It's an argument about oh, what side are you on? No. I'm not any side. I'm just trying to understand whether this policy is a good one or not. 
I'm not anti-trans. I'm not a Nazi. I just want to have it explained to me why you think men should be allowed to go into ladies' private spaces and into their sports. It's not anti-anything. I'm just questioning the policy. I'm not anti the environment or a climate change denier when I ask, how does this policy make sense? Why you got such a downer on fossil fuels? What makes you think that they're changing the climate? Because there's no evidence that it is changing the climate. Oh, yes, you can build a model that shows it does. You can invent quangos that say it does. You can have scientific papers written it does. But point to me, to the evidence that fossil fuels are causing temperatures to rise to dangerous levels. There is not a skerrick of evidence. Not a skerrick. And if there was, you don't think we would have heard about it? We just get a lot of arm-waving and abuse. It's a funny thing, isn't it, that you ask questions now about politics and about policy, and you get back abuse and name-calling, and that name-calling divides us, you know, the river of filth group, say, or the climate change deniers, say, or the people that want free speech being Nazis, say. We've got to stop this politics of division. We are a people living on these two islands, jogging along happily, and we're choosing in politics who should lead us, who should rule, who should run the government for a little spell. Don't carve us up. We don't need that. And if you do carve us up politically, it always ends badly. RCR is on a mission to revive Honest Media. And now you too can be an integral part of it by joining the RCR Foundation Members Club. Receive exclusive benefits only available to club members, including your own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind-the-scenes discussions, along with our all-new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes, that's delivered to your email box every morning, keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio slash members to see how you can join the mission that's making a difference. Making a difference. Uh, you're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. You can send me an email at inbox at realitycheck.radio and please do, or text me at 2057. We've got our stalwart, our gardening guru, Wally Richards. Good morning, Wally. Good morning, Rodney, and good morning, listeners. Oh, well, the listeners love you, and I um, I don't know what they like most, your brilliance and guru status for us or me stumbling along learning to be a gardener with your help. But I've got lots to report. My well, little lettuces are growing rather well uh, in my glass house that I planted very, very early, and I've even had a good strike of carrots. Um, what happens to them uh, over this time, I don't know, in my tunnel house. And I've put my potatoes out um, to grow their little shoots. Mm -hmm. And I prepared the ground so it's already to go in. And I went to the countdown and I, no, pack and save. I don't shop at countdown anymore because they went woke. Pack and save. And I bought some Vivaldi potatoes and blow me down. I cooked a few and then in the bottom, they sprouted. So um, I rushed them out to my garden and had the joy of planting them. 
And I dug a I dug a double spade length uh, trench, lots of manure, and placed them in and just covered them over the top. So I'm very excited, although it's still cold. In fact, it's uh, been a little bit of snow here. But right. um, that's my excitement for the week, uh, Wally. Now, in your newsletter, you talk tomatoes. Mm-hmm. For some reason, tomatoes frighten me. Like, what, sorry? Frighten me, like to grow. Frighten me. Yeah, because it seems quite tough to grow a tomato, like happy putting in the lettuce seed and the carrot seeds and sort of things like that. But for some reason, tomatoes strike me as a big ask to get a tomato to grow and produce that beautiful tomato. And I love tomatoes. I could eat tomatoes all day long. Right. So tell me about growing tomatoes for me and my listeners what do we need to do okay well at this time of the year you'll see in the garden centers mitre tens etc um there'll be the early tomato plants which more than likely will be early girl which is a nice medium-sized tomato um good flavor ideal for the home garden and sweet 100 which is uh an excellent plant to grow. You don't want to grow too many of the sweet 100s because they produce lots and lots of bite-sized tomatoes, which are perfect to just throw straight in your salad when they're ripe. With the, are those the little ones stuff. smaller than a cherry? Yeah, they're okay. just about the size of a marble or a bit yeah. bigger. Um, depends. Right. At the moment. And tell me this, that early tomatoes what does it mean that a tomato is early uh, it'll ripen early or produce fruit early okay right um actually any tomato would do like even the big beefsteak tomatoes you could be starting them off now if you could get hold of them right okay. unless you germinate your own seed um they take longer to mature and ripen etc and what most of us tomato growers like to do is get our tomatoes in as early as possible and have them with ripe fruit as quickly as possible before Christmas um, and before the glut happens in the market and the prices then come down. So while the prices are expensive for growing a kilo of um, tomatoes, um, it's ideal to be able to pick your own for free, for yep. sure. Right. Okay. Now, if you've got a glass house or tunnel house, uh, excellent. One aspect, though, if you're growing in the soil of your uh, tunnel house, glass house, the soil is still pretty cold, right? And you can plant your tomato plant and it'll sit there and it'll sulk. It won't grow much. It's feet are cold. Yeah, because it's feet cold, right? So I we know do that old... feeling. I know that feeling. And I right. sulk when my feet are cold. I go up and try and help my kids in skiing, and I'm standing on that bloody snow. And if my feet get cold, I sulk. Um, so I can understand a tomato plant feeling a little upset. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so we put some socks on the tomato. Well, ah. not actually. What we do is we make a hole reasonable deep, like a spade depths. And then we go out and mow the lawn. Hopefully it's not too wet to mow. And we get a catcher full of clippings and we stuff that into the bottom of the hole. 
and then you put some soil over the top of that, and then you put in any nutrients that you want, like sheep manure, pellets, chook manure, um, Wally's secret tomato food with been uh, added. That's yeah. a very good one. And then you put a, a good layer of soil right up to basically soil level because we're going to make it quite a reasonably deep hole to plant the young seedling in because we want to plant it right up to the first two leaves or a bit beyond. Now, they were the embryo leaves that the plant had initially when it sprouted, right? So you don't? Planted up to where it was planted in the punnet, you planted no, it deeper, right up to the least. Yeah, yeah. What? Now, the reason for it is like potatoes. It will then produce shoots or roots, should I say, all the way up that's under the soil. Now, you notice on an older plant later on, you'll get aerial roots, little bumps happening towards the base. They would be roots if the plant was buried that deep okay right now the idea is the more roots you've got the better the plant because there's more feeding from down below got it so up to the first leaves and it's it's nicely buried if by chance it's one of these super toms or a grafted tomatoes you can't do that if you did that you'd be covering the graft and you'd kill it because it would rot Right. How do I how do I know it's grafted? Does it say that on the pot? You'll pay a lot more money for it. Okay, we won't get one of those. <laughs> <laughs> and it will say it's grafted. Yeah. Okay. In the old days, we used to have super toms, right? That I company is that. gone. Um, they're they're a great company. They had the earliest tomatoes out in the market. Always early girl ones like that. Um, and yeah, they retired. Uh, I think they sold the business. But it fell over afterwards. So a grafted tomato has what a rootstock with a top grafted on it or something, does it? What they do is they have the rootstock, yes, of a very vigorous tomato, yeah. right? Which is not a good tomato, but it's got a very strong root system. And and they splice it and put the two together, they join very easily with a bit of, um, uh, what's the name, tape around them, grafting tape, and that's how you buy them. Um, oh. And you only plant them at the same level as what they are in the pot they come in. And they are always individual. They're never in a cell pack or anything. Yeah. And you pay probably about 6 $8 or something for them. I don't know. Um, and they're good because you get a strong root system with the good tomatoes, early tomatoes on the top. Right. Um, supposedly, if everything goes right and you feed them well, they should produce the equivalent of three tomatoes plants. Wow. Right. In fact, you grow them in that uh, trident formation of three, what's that, three stakes, because you take a couple of the early laterals and take them up, they'll become um, part of your mature plant, and then you've got the central one. So that's the ideal way to do it. It's like having three tomatoes in the space of one, which 
for space saving, that's quite good. So they're not that expensive if you pull it off because you're getting three plants for the price of one. If you do it right, yeah. As um, doing it right, meaning the stakes and the nutrients. Stakes, nutrients, and training. Now, okay. all, all tomato plants will produce what we call laterals. Now, laterals are those side growths that come between the trunk and the leaf, right? Yeah. Now, with um, there's different types. There's terminate and indeterminate tomato plants. Indeterminate is the ones that go way up high. In fact, they're vines. Terminate is the dwarf tomatoes, like um, Russian red uh, is a dwarf tomato. Scoresbury dwarf is a uh, dwarf tomato. On dwarf tomatoes, they only grow about a metre tall, but they spread, and you don't take the laterals off them. You let them go, right? There's a lot of tricks in growing tomatoes. So I you can can, see, I'm actually back being scared. Uh, I can <laughs> see why your concerns are, because there's so much involved in it. Like, say, for instance, okay, if you want your plant to produce good, big, sized tomatoes, and depending upon variety, beef steak will produce a big tomato, uh, money maker, medium-sized tomato, and then you've got your um, sweet 100s, a small tomato, right? Now, if you want to produce the best-sized tomatoes for the type of plant, you remove all the laterals, right? Yeah. So it's only one trunk going up, yeah, and the fruit sets on that particular one. And so, it's not being shaded by the other laterals and leaves, I guess. Yes, true. And, um, all, and all the goodness is going into those tomatoes. Right. Where if you leave the laterals on, you're going to have lots of branches and probably end up with about five or six stakes to, to keep them all supported when they get to maturity. Um, you're, the result of that, they're not all going to get enough food to make full potential. I so you tend to get a lot of average tomatoes. Okay. Right. Can I just back up a little bit? Because I remember you telling me early on, and this is just to prove that I listen, and we were discussing lettuces, and the question was, do you plant lettuces from seeds or do you buy the little lettuces already growing i can't recall what they were called but you know in the punnets and you have mm -hmm. the lettuce that's a couple of inches high and i remember you suggesting and correct me if i've got this wrong that when you plant them out they get a bit of a shock and it takes mm -hmm. them a while to get their equil equilibrium and it's not that big a saving in time to be growing the lettuces from seeds so I had always assumed that I would grow my tomatoes from seeds because it's cheaper and I, I wouldn't yeah why why would I why would I grow tomatoes from seedlings that's the word rather than seeds okay if you want an early start and you haven't got the means to propagate um then to buy seedlings it's a good idea. What's propagate um, mean? Propagate. 
propagate means to germinate the seeds yourself. Can, can I just put them in the ground? Um, once again, you need warmth. Now, soil temperature for most seeds has to be at least 10 degrees, uh-huh. right? And if you get your thermometer out and stick it in the ground and, and take a reading and you find it's not 10 degrees, you're wasting your time. The seed will either sit there and sprout when the, the temperature comes up, or alternately, if it's too wet, it might just rot in the ground and never come up. So right. buying the seedlings is a more surefire bet, and also because your aim isn't to get tomatoes when it's easy, because that's when they're cheap. Your aim is to get your tomatoes <clears throat> when it's tougher because that's when you're having to pay a lot for your tomato and you wouldn't bother. Yeah, yeah. The so earlier you can crop. Yeah. Yeah. So for an early crop, you're better to get tomato seedlings. Yes, unless you've already germinated. Now, oh, well, I have. Ke- so. Keen gardeners would have a propagation pad, which is a heat pad. Yeah. Which gives a temperature of about 20 degrees. They would sit there little. Um, pots or whatever uh, with the seed in on top of that, and there's the under warmth, they would germinate, and they normally do that in the house um, because they don't have electricity in their um, glass house. But the problem is, and I've already struck this with one person, sent me a picture. It wasn't a tomato plant. It was, um, I think it was a capsicum or uh, eggplant. I couldn't tell. But he had germinated inside because he thought it was warmer, and he left it inside on the windowsill. And on the thing, poor thing was stretching like <laughs> it was about five inches long and thin as a rake and yellow as a. As it's like us be. tying us down on the chair beside the fridge. We have to crane yeah. our neck out and get bent. Okay, you now, need overhead light. Yes, most now, important. You mentioned earlier that there are. <clears throat> I know you've covered this with me. There are indeterminate and determinate and dwarf tomato seedlings. What they right. are? The dwarf plants are the determinant because they yeah. grow tall, right? Do they need a stake? Um, generally speaking, no. Um, like Scoresbury dwarf, uh, if you can get hold of Scoresbury dwarf, nice big tomato, uh, lots of them on a plant that's about a metre tall and a metre spread, right? Um, They can need a little bit of staking, but generally not. Your indeterminate, they could actually be a vine because they will grow up to your roof of your glass house and then carry on. And I've seen a tomato plant growing in hydroponics, this is some years ago, and it was about 40 foot long, and it was only the last three feet of it that actually had leaves and fruit. And, and it had been was growing for, for two years. No. Yeah, no trouble. So they are a vine in actual okay. fact. Um, given the opportunity, they can't sucker onto or climb over plants and so forth, but they will just keep on growing and growing and growing. Um, and given ample staking 
and good conditions, you could have a tomato plant that you have to get the ladder out to bloody pick the tomatoes <laughs> off the top. <laughs> yeah. Could I run that down the roof with a stake, like at, at right angles? Yeah, well, you usually have a wire along yes. to do that um, aspect. Okay, so my partner should get that, hopefully. I've cut them off. We should have to tell the listeners and not to ring up for any tomato food until Wally's finished. Okay, um, we talked about the laterals. Now, that's yes. an important aspect. Now, a thing you can do is you can let the laterals grow to about, say, um, I talk in inches, about four inches long. And then you carefully nip them off, and then, yeah. then you can use that and strike it as a seedling. Oh, wow. Yeah, they're easy to strike, right? A bit of warmth into some potting mix, into a pot, in your glass house, on your shelf or whatever, and um, just keep it moist, spray it with magic botanic liquid, and you've got another plant. And it will be exactly the same as the parent, of course. Mm. Right. Also, another fallacy is people think that a hybrid tomato, which is especially um, what's being grown, if you keep the seeds of it, it won't come true to form. From my experience, they basically always come true to form. So if you buy an expensive plant, um, and there are some varieties which can be quite dear to buy, and you grow it and you collect the seeds uh, when they're mature and um, you can grow once again from those. I, I, I have uh, tomato plants which I used to grow now about 30 years ago, kept the seeds in the fridge, and a couple of years ago I germinated them and I got about a half strike. So yeah. they're quite viable for a long period of time. And any tomatoes that you like and grow um, and you want to germinate from seeds yourself, all you do when the plants, when you have your ripe tomatoes is just take some of the seeds off, put them on a um, piece of uh, paper toweling uh, or tissue, let them dry, and then put them in a jar with their name on and the date in the fridge and uh, they'll be good for probably a 20-odd years. Well, certainly for next season, then. Mm. And okay. tell me, when you when you pull these laterals off, do you cut them, like with scissors or with a knife, or do you pull them? What's the best way to take the lateral off? Pinch. You pinch. Just pinch them off. Okay. And, and kind of pinch and pull. Yeah. Um, there, There is a aspect that... You should not use steel on a plant. It's, it's I don't know whether it's how detrimental it is, but there is an old law, um, folklore, where um, if you're going to use anything, you don't use copper, yeah. copper scissors or uh, whatever, but not steel. Goodness me. Yeah. And do you follow that law? Um, by and large, yes, yeah, uh, but I don't have any copper scissors, unfortunately, no. so my, my fingers are 
uh, copper like. <laughs> yeah. So just well, punch I'm out. not quite excited now about tomatoes. You've sort of demystified it for me. Um, after this, I'm going to get on the web page, make my order, and rush off. Now, down here in Queenstown, I go to Bunnings. Right. Because they're nice to me and sometimes might attend. I'm not aware of a nursery, right? Because um, land rental here is just astronomical. Is it okay to be buying your seedlings and that from Bunnings and Mitre 10, or would you? it be preferable to be going to a dedicated garden nursery shop? No. I mean, say so tomatoes are tomatoes, the seedlings okay. are seedlings. What do you do? Um, the varieties, you'll see heritage type tomatoes, which some of them um, are good, but generally speaking, I've never found them to be all that great. Uh, I prefer tomatoes like Gross Lisa, Moneymaker, um, Russian Red, traditional ones, mm-hmm. uh, in which some of those now they determine as being heritage tomatoes because they're quite old varieties and they've been popular for many years because they are very good. Mm. Um, what's that? Now, should I stagger? my tomato growing and of course i guess in a month or two i'll start planting them outside so that i have a long season like so i plant these i don't know i was thinking of a half a dozen seedlings particularly if i get the laterals off in my tunnel house and that'll be my early tomatoes but later on i mean i want the tomatoes to run as long as i can Right. So in a month or two, would I be planting seedlings outside to, to have tomatoes later in the season? Yep, yep, yep. And your um, part of the world, yes, that would be about right for temperature and so forth. Um, in be- Auckland, because or- the tomato, the tomatoes on the ones in the tunnel house, I'd be getting them over a period of some weeks, right? I mean, it just doesn't all happen at once, and then they are no more tomatoes. No, no, yeah, they just keep on going. So, like, if you were growing lettuces, you'd plant six lettuces now, and in three or four weeks' time, plant another six lettuces, so you've got succession. Got it. With tomatoes, capsicums, et cetera, one plant just keeps on going until winter. Okay. And it will keep on fruiting. Right the way through. So you don't need to plant another one uh, in a month's time. But the only time you do that is probably round about January, February, where you would get some winter-type tomatoes, which is like your Russian red or one called Antarctic or Arctic. Arctic is one, which you'd have to grow from seed yourself. Um, And you get them started so that you can grow your tomatoes through the winter time in your tunnel house, and they're going to be up quite good size with fruit on as winter folds in, right? Wow. Now, the key is that tomatoes, to set fruit, have got to flower and create pollen, right? Now, some varieties, like Moneymaker, Gross Lisa, 
you need warm temperatures for them to flower and produce pollen. They'll flower, but no pollen, right? A Arctic-type tomato plant will produce pollen in the cold weather, right, such as Russian red or Arctic or whatever, right? Now, if you grow, say, a moneymaker in the middle of winter and it's there, it's, it's flowers are there, but no, never sets any fruit because there's not enough temperature for the flower to produce pollen, mm-hmm. right? So the, a lot of people think or don't realise that they're temperature-related for the pollen. And this the is other, the early season, mid-season and late-season idea for tomatoes. Yes. So your Russian, your Russian red and your Arctic, they're late-season tomatoes. Oh, no, you can grow them any time of the oh, year. okay. But they will be ones that will produce fruit in the cold of winter. Okay. Okay. Now, okay. another tip too, uh, because there's so many things to learn about tomatoes, a lot of people um, who grow tomatoes in the tunnel house or whatever, they say they flower, but I don't get any fruit. Now, the reason being is that tomato plants, even though they're self-fertile, they need some movement to move the pollen in the flower, right? Now, the trick here is when your tomato plants are up and they've got flowers on, nice sunny day, it has to be a nice sunny day, you go out and you tap the plant to make it vibrate. It will set the fruit. My goodness. In the old days, we used to have a product called uh, Full Set or Tom Set, right, which is a little spray that you used to spray. It was a hormone spray, and they banned it uh, later on. Booth, the chemist, actually used to produce it. Um, The other aspect is... So what you're doing there is you're shaking the pollen off, what is it, the stamens or something, and it's falling into the flower's anther or whatever, the male bit and the female bit. Mm -hmm. And unless that happens, it can't fertilise and grow a tomato. Right. Yep, yep. My goodness. Uh, Commercially, I, I, many years ago, I bought a glasshouse complex in Palmerston North from an elderly Chinese gentleman who had the big glass houses, the commercial ones, and he was growing tomatoes. And he was growing tomatoes right into winter, no trouble at all. He had the best tomatoes in New Zealand because of a little trick he did. But one of the aspects of it, in the glass houses, there was crisscross wires, right, number eight wires going all up and down in squares uh, between them, about oh, probably 18 inches apart, wow. right? So imagine all these wires going across the glass house and then all these wires coming up and down the glass house, sitting yeah. on top of each other. What would be done for staking is that you'd take some twine and you'd tie it to the wires and you'd run it down and you'd have a piece of number eight wire with a, um, a bent uh, 
in it like a hook and you'd shove that in the ground next to the plant. And then you would twist the plant around as it grows up the trine. So it kind of spirals up and there's your support, right? Yeah, yeah. What you would do on a sunny day is you, when the plants are up and they're in flower, Oh, you just shake the vine, shake the you twine. Know, you would take a stick and you'd whack the wires and you give them a real solid rack and the whole place would go. <laughs> <laughs> and all the fruit was set. How amazing. Yeah, it was. His trick was, and, and they even had DSIR, Massey and so forth because he was producing beautiful tomatoes Beautiful flavour, and uh, they and that they held. They they kept extremely well, right? And they couldn't work out what it was. What he did when he uh, built the glass houses in those days, there was a gas works in Palmerston North who would take the coal and extract the gas from it. And what did you end up with? Coke. Remember yeah, Coke? I do remember Coke. Yeah. I don't know if you can get Coke anymore, but I'd love to get some. Um, it's a little bit like Black Magic, right? Because Black Magic, uh, Magic, not, not Black Magic, but, um, our Magic Botanic Liquid, because that comes from lignate or coal too. He actually put several tons, he dug out a great big underneath, put several tons of this Coke in, and then put the soil on top of that. Now, of course, he, the plant's roots were going down and they were getting the nutrients, like from the botanical uh, liquid, from the Coke. And oh that made goodness. them really special. Oh, my goodness. Well, when I was Googling away, Wally, I came across a YouTube that was talking about making charcoal mm -hmm. and adding it into your compost right could that, could that is that a similar thing yes but no oh <laughs> no because your coal etc is from prehistoric uh times when the world was mineral rich and cycads and ferns and everything grew massive along with the dinosaurs and of course they all turned into our what we call fossil fuels, coal, oil, right? And in the coal is trapped. Now, theoretically, you go bag, buy a bag of coal, which you can still buy coal, right? Yeah. Some people burn coal, which is damn good, especially if you've got one of those. Um, Absolutely. Uh, what's the name? Ovens. Uh, mm -hmm. I suppose if you were to take the coal and pulverise it, bring it back to coal dust, right, and sprinkle that in the ground underneath your plant, like tomato plant or whatever, you've got all those nutrients from that taken up by the plant. Isn't that uh, extraordinary? Yeah. Carbon nets is, once again, uh, uh, something derived, I think, from coal. I'm not sure how they're produced, but that would be another possibility. Um, what about the ash from your fire too? Is I mean I know it's separate because the point about the coal and the magic botanic liquid is it's coming from those ancient times when it was mineral rich. But separate to that, is 
is the ash from your wood burner, is that useful in your garden? Yes, it's potash. That's that's why they call it potash, because we used to take it out of the fireplace, put it in a pot, then it cooled down um, so it was dead, and then we would dispose of it either by sprinkling around their garden. And it's it's not a strong potash, but it is potash. And think about this too. In fact, like when you're clearing native bush, right, in the old days, and then they would burn it off, and the ash from that would be valuable for planting your crops, your grass, or whatever, right? Yeah. Because you've got all the minerals from it and, and the potash. And the what's, what is potash? It's like, um, is it minerals or is it? Sulfate, is, potassium sulfate is, is the man-made equivalent. Okay. And and plants need the K? Yep. And that provides them with the K. And the sulfate, do they need the sulfur or is that just not used by the plants? Um, yeah, Sulfur, once again, is very good in plants um, and it's very good for yourself. Mm. For instance, off topic a little bit, but your body needs a small amount of sulfur daily, right? Mm -hmm. Now, years ago when we were young, in our food chain from the market gardens that were growing naturally, etc., you would have got your uh, daily amount of sulfur. Right. These days, in commercial grown products, uh, food, veggies, uh, there's not a lot of minerals and elements. So there's two types of sulfur. There's the sulfur that comes out of volcanoes, yellow, right, which you can use for various things. And back in days gone by, um, we used to um, use it to fumigate uh, our glass houses, which we still do, or in cases of uh, colds going around, mum used to get some um, hot coals out of the coal range and on her hearth shovel, sprinkle some yellow powdered sulphur on that, and my job as a five-year-old was to walk through the house with these smoking embers um, to fumigate the house, and we never got a cold. Goodness. Yeah, the sulfur kills germs, right? And back to, well, yeah, germs. Um, because we lack sulfur, and one of these things that sulfur does is carries oxygen through the body to the cells. We have a product which is sulfur that's derived from plants, in actual fact, pine trees, called MSM. MSM is a white crystal powder right, which you take about half a teaspoon and you dissolve it into some nice fruit juice with um, non-chlorinated water and vitamin C, and you take that and you have that morning and night. It was about 20 years ago, a chap from America through the internet I was in contact with, I learned about it, and he sent me 500 grams of this MSM to New Zealand for me to do. He was doing an experiment where you had to take a photograph, a good, clear photograph of your face, right, before you started on the taking the MSM, and then six months later, another photograph. Mm. Reason being 
sulfur is nature's beauty element. And he was determining by doing a whole lot of people that their complexion would improve. We sell this MSM. Now, um, ladies quite often will contact me after I've bought some a month or two later and said, my goodness, my uh, skin, hair, nails have never been so good. Why? Because it's nature's beauty element. It also is magic on arthritis, like sore joints, things like that. Uh, I had a lady just recently, she rang me up, she'd got some MSM, and um, she said, before this, I was virtually crippled. She said, I couldn't get out of bed in the morning without a lot of difficulties, I was on painkillers, I heard about the MSM, I got some. She said, after a couple of weeks, I jump out of bed in the mornings now, no problems at all. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Some people, it's slow for um, that to happen, and other people, it can be miraculous. It's kind of like overnight. And you have to, as a human being, be constantly experimenting with your nutrition, it seems to me, because you don't know what you're missing out on until you shake it up a bit. Right. Um, I'm actually, this week, have been gone back to a protocol where I have a warm cup of bone broth and um, some kefir in the morning. Oh, my goodness, I'm feeling so much better. I'm also, through the day, I have um, the seed sprouts growing, and I always just grab a handful, and I'm finding that's been helpful with the magic botanic liquid sprayed on them. And I must be getting some nutrients through that because I'm finding that very good. And you'll be pleased to know I just this week planted some wheatgrass um, right. to to make a, smooth, a smoothie drink out of. Because I've had such success, funnily enough, with the sprouts and the magic botanic liquid. I mean, I literally just eat a handful a day and I find them very tasty. And uh, mung bean sprouts or a mixture of sprouts, I'm growing them all in that little thing that I got. Um, from Bunnings, wasn't it? I got that, and um, it's fantastic. And every now and then, I'll throw them in and and fry them up with some for dinner, for for the kids and the family. Um, <clears throat> and having done all that, I actually realised that I, there must have been something a bit lacking in my minerals because I'm actually feeling uh, better and oh, sleeping you will. better. Yep. See, this is the problem. Um, we're not getting the nutritional value out of our. No food chain when it's commercial. If we grow it ourselves, naturally, uh, we've got all the uh, goodness um, from the veggies and stuff that we grow. The more you can grow, the better off. But even if you can only grow a little bit, even just doing the sprouts, you're going to be that much better off as a result. Uh, And you'll live longer, healthier, for sure. Okay, Wally, well. You've once again inspired me. I'm going to tackle these tomatoes. I'm going to call in and I'm going into town. I'm going to call into Bunnings and see if they've got any tomato seedlings. I'm going to put my order in for Wally's secret tomato food and Wally's super copper nutrient. Nutrient. I couldn't read my own writing. Um, And I'm going to get those tomatoes 
going well. I can't wait. Oh, my goodness. Um, I go into, because my, where I've got my tunnel house is sort of like 15 minutes away as it happens from where I am at the moment. So some days I don't get out, particularly when it's been poor weather. And I go out there and it just amazes me how much growth there is, Wally. Mm, yeah. And I am I am a bit scared that my breath my tomatoes, I planted tomato seedlings in the dead of winter and they sprouted and died. But my lettuces popped up, and I mean they'd be like um three or four inches across, you and me doing old Christian units. I got carrots, um, I got brassicas, but you said they might bolt, but we'll see. And um I'm gonna add tomatoes. Funnily enough, I, I bought potatoes that I liked, and I thought um, I've set them in the shade and in the warm in the tunnel house, and they're just starting to sprout literally after a month. Right. And then I bought potatoes for dinner, and opened the bag, and they'd sprouted, and I was actually quite gleeful. Normally, I'd be upset. Why? Do you know why? No. Potatoes will sprout when there's a change of temperature. In other words, the potatoes are normally co- stored cool. When you bring them home and put them in your warm kitchen, next to no time, you're starting to sprout. It's the warmth that causes them to break. Okay. Because you want them to sprout and get like an inch or two before you plant them, right? Oh, no, no, you don't want them too long because they'll break. Ideally, after they show some sprouting, you put them in a nice sunny position, protected, to green them off, right? So those sprouts then become very hard and green, and then you plant them. Oops. 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 Now, here's an important thing. Should I dig them up? No, 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 no. They, they, will do, <laughs> they will be okay. Um, in a glass house, tunnel house, and even outside, white fly tomatoes are a problem, right? Now, in the old days, what we used to do with the glass houses, we would plant marigolds in there, heaps of marigolds and hanging baskets and pots and everywhere, right? And we'd have our tomato plants in there. The tomatoes, um, at night time, we would close the house down, right, all the vents, etc. And then in the morning when we opened up, it would just smell of marigolds, right? Now, white fly outside flying along, they find their tomato plant host by the smell. But, of course, if you've got this marigold smell there, they can't smell the tomato plant. They keep on flying, right? Mm. Now, Instead of having to do that, what we use is neem tree granules on uh, in the glass house, and they create a smell which disguises the smell of the tomato plants. So if you're in open soil, you just yep. sprinkle some on the soil, uh, they get moist, they smell, and that disguises the Is plants. that a one-off thing, or do you got to do it every so often? Um until they break down, it's probably one off, or maybe okay. later in the season you might sprinkle a few more. If you're using the powder, yes, you'd have to because that breaks down much okay. quicker. Um, oh, so, wow. Wally's secret tomato food with neem has got the 
powder, of course, there. So you oh, put, I don't need to buy that. I've got that no. in the I got it in the secret tomato food. Yeah. That secret tomato food is going under the tomato plant, right? And then on top of the soil. Got it. So uh, you're two ways. A little bit in the planting hole. Yeah. And then also about a teaspoon or so at oh. initially on top of the soil. And it's so as you water, it's going to water down. The reason your tomato plants that you started off in winter died was because it was too wet and they okay. didn't like it, right? If it had kept okay. it dry, they would still be going. My goodness me. What a great thing this is, Wally. Thank you for this. This is so wonderful. I can't wait. We will have a regular update. As you know, every fortnight we get Wally on. Wally, you're a treasure. I know I grabbed you a bit at the last minute, and I know you got uh, some you're having to hop in your car and head away. So I thank you for your time. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on Radley Check Radio, and we've been talking to Wally Richards. He's uh, magic. You can give him a ring at 0800 466 464. Uh, you can email him at Wally JR at Uh, and he would love to hear from you. And if you've got problems in your garden, you can um, ring Wally. He doesn't mind. Or uh, you can also text me 2057 or email me inbox at rallycheck.radio because there'll be other listeners too that will be having perhaps potentially similar, similar problems and we'll deal with them on the show. But Wally's going to be coming on. We might have to up the pace a bit, Wally, because now we're heading into a busy time for gardening, aren't we? Oh, yeah, yeah. And um, unlike a month or two ago, it was quiet and there's only certain things you can do. Now we're starting to go hell for leather, as they say. We might and, have to go weekly, Wally, through this yeah. period because I'm going to struggle and I've got to be keep reminded of what to do. You're lovely. You have a great trip. And thank you for your time and for sharing your knowledge and I will be putting in my order. Thank you, Wally. I'll get my tomatoes going. Thank you. No trouble. Thank you. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio. You're on Reality Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Marvellous. Dr. Muriel Newman explained so that we can understand here poor, poor, and how it came to be. What a cynical, calculating bunch of trickery i'm trying to choose my words carefully <laughs> that has seen that here poor poor enter into government thinking and into government departments through our hospital system health system natural resources system schools everywhere you look without any disclosure without any public debate without any public consultation it's been a quiet coup and it's changed everything well Good on Muriel, because she's exposed it and she's explaining it to us. And you have to go across to her site, nzcpr.com, and sign up to her newsletter, because she does a fantastic job. Oh, and the wonderful Kathy Jamison telling us about different formulations of the jab. Can't tell us, giving different reasons why they can't tell us. Don't worry, you don't need to know. Yes, we do. 
it was put in our arms under pain of losing our jobs and losing our houses. We would really, really like to know, and we'll be keeping up with Kathy to find out just what's been happening there. Thank you for coming along and listening to our show and being part of our community. It's been Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RallyCheck.radio. Don't forget, send me a text, 2057. Email me inbox at RallyCheck.radio. Thank you. <laughs>